Hello, and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS. In today's episode, we're asking, what lessons have we learned from financial services in 2023 so far? We're just over the halfway point for the year so far, which means all those predictions pieces published in 2023 are now likely in the bin. The first six months of 2023 have thrown up some huge twists and turns for the financial services industry. So it's time to take stock and see what we've learned in the year so far. So we've put together a panel of experts to discuss what have bank runs taught us? How is the industry dealing with the economic downturn? And are banks really banning AI? We'll discuss all these and more in today's show. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Fintech Insider community, we need your help. The 11FS Awards returns on Wednesday, 15th of November, and we will be celebrating the people and businesses from across the globe who are helping to move the industry forward. This is where you come in. Do not miss your chance to influence who takes home an 11FS Awards trophy, whether they're trying to make the world a better place for their customers, changing the game for businesses, or utilizing AI to improve their customer experience. We want you to tell us who is building the best stuff. Submit your nominations right now at 11fsawards.com. That's 11fsawards.com. get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of outstanding guests who are going to shed some light on these questions. First of all, I'm delighted to be joined by Ewan Silver, Group CTO at 11FS. Thank you so much for being here, Ewan. Hey, Benjamin. Can you give our listeners a reintroduction to you and your role at 11FS, to the extent that's not obvious from Group CTO? (laughs) So I suppose Group CTO means I'm in charge of all the technologists and all the engineering capability here at 11FS. So I run all the engineering teams uh, and also lead all of our sort of architectural and technical strategy work. And that's me. Thank you. And I'm delighted that we have a FinTech Insider debut for Danny Brewster, CEO of 21. Welcome to the show, Danny. What should our listeners know about you and about 21? So 21 is, we're, we're just about to launch into the, the UK and European markets. And we are offering business current accounts uh, where under the Electronic Money Institution framework. So we're not actually a bank but we can do all of your payments and provide money services for businesses. And it became, uh, we, we built 21 because within the, the wider group, we also have a couple of Bitcoin-based brands and we couldn't get a business account. So we just had to build it ourselves. That's the story of so many entrepreneurs, isn't it? Getting frustrated and just building a better answer because there wasn't a good one in the market. Well, fantastic. Super exciting. Welcome. And it's also another welcome return to Fintech Insider for Mike Carter, Head of Platform Lending at Innovate Finance. Welcome back to the podcast, Mike. Um, What should our listeners know about you and Innovate Finance, or at least those who haven't uh, come across you on previous podcasts? Thanks for inviting me back, Benjamin. So Innovate Finance, we're the Industry Association for Fintech in the UK, and we advocate for the industry and policy matters, as well as a wider range of issues that affect the industry covering capital investment and showcasing the industry across the UK and the rest of the world. Thank you. And welcome back. 
Well, thank you all for joining. So let's let's dive in. And we want to start the conversation with the big, probably the biggest story from the year so far um, from back in March, which is that Silicon Valley Bank was closed by its regulators and the FDIC uh, took control. This was reported widespread. Um, so Silicon Valley Bank collapsed on Friday the 10th of March in the second biggest bank failure in American history. A run on deposits doomed the tech-focused lenders' plans to raise fresh capital. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, took control of the bank via a new entity it created called the Deposit Insurance National Bank of Santa Clara. All of the bank's deposits were transferred to the new bank. The bank was the 16th largest in the United States with some $209 billion in assets as of December 31st, according to the Federal Reserve. It was by far the biggest bank to fail since the near collapse of the financial system in 2008, and second only to the crisis-era collapse of Washington Mutual. So, wow, uh, what did we learn from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank? Um, Mike, I think I'm going to come to you first on this one. What do you think the lessons are from that? Thanks, Major. Well, I think it, it reinforces how the banking sector is very much dependent upon confidence and the rules and regulations that are put in place around it are are good, but they're only, they only go so far. And what we saw was that those rules that were put in place after the financial crisis may have been suitable for the financial crisis, but in the intervening 10 years where tech has progressed considerably and uh, you know, the run that was caused in the US evolved in the space of a couple of days as communication was very, very rapid. And so potentially the rules that were put in place after the financial crisis through Basel III um, need to be updated. Maybe the um, FSES protection in the UK and an equivalent in other countries needs to be rethought. And maybe that the bank liquidity rules also need to be rethought for banks to hold more liquidity. But I think it, it highlighted that the rules that were put in place perhaps are, are not adequate in the, in the new environment. It was shockingly fast, wasn't it? Um, how quickly it went down. That was one of the things that really, really, really struck me. I, I, for me, I, I think that's one of the key things here, right? Just how quickly that money disappeared from the bank. You know, the, I think the roles of sort of social media and the way that the bank was probably relatively well capitalized. Obviously, it had a had a weird asset liability mismatch, you know, far too much de- uh, deposits and not enough lending. But uh, you can see how, you know, a very small client base just destabilized very, very quickly everyone's sort of communicating with everyone else and that money just leached out. And I think that's probably unheard of in the industry, right? Money just disappearing so fast from a, from a single bank. Must have been one of the fastest bank collapses in history, as well as one of the, as well as one of the largest. Do, do we think it was inevitable that it would collapse once it had that sort of collapse in confidence? Danny, what did, what did you think? I, th- I think Signature and First Republic also failed. Yeah. So it wasn't just Silicon Valley Bank. There was a, a few banks around the same time that was clearly, there was a lot of correlation between the collapse of all three. So I actually have a, a different perspective on bank failures because uh, I actually lived in Cyprus during the banking crisis there uh, and the banks were recapitalized using depositor funds. So they actually did the, the bail in. And I think the banks play a, a very dangerous game when obviously like rehypothecating funds and uh, and everything to to make that business model work but the the general depositors aren't actually aware of the the risk that they're taking when they actually give the money to the bank and that was pretty evident when i lived in cyprus as well 
they literally closed the banks and the, the plan was to haircut 8% of everybody's account that had more than a thousand euros in there, despite the deposits of protection. But naturally there was riots in the street and they went back to the drawing board uh, with the Troika and the IMF and the European Central Bank and they decided that 50% of everything over 100,000 euros would be haircut and you'd receive shares in the collapsed bank. So for me, watching the the FDIC take control of the banks to basically bail out the depositors, it's kicking the can down the road because there needs to be a, a much deeper level of change in the, the practices and updating of the rules, uh, as Mike said, with regards to to the, the capitalization of these banks. And we also live in this world now where everybody is hyper-connected and information travels so fast. Bank runs 100 years ago would be triggered by news on the grapevine, whereas now it's on Twitter and every VC, every large depositor basically made a rush for the exit, which is uh, obviously a, a death blow to, to, to any bank almost now. Really, really interesting point. I mean. <laughs> Interestingly, you're saying that the FDIC sort of did a better job than, than the Cypriot authorities, at least initially, um, but that there are still challenges. I think that's debatable. I think bad businesses should fail, but then there's obviously systemic risk with banks. So, so you and let's bring you back on this one. I mean, it, it only makes a good, an interesting point there about bad businesses should fail. I mean, the the asset liability mismatch at Silicon Valley Bank was very surprising, and the way they handled it was, you know, they, they, you know, they clearly left it far too long. But was it was it fundamentally a bad business, or did they just get get a couple of things catastrophically wrong? I don't think it was necessarily a bad business. I mean, um, you know, people have been living in this low interest environment for far too long. Therefore, you know, the bank's obviously been tracing yield because, you know, what is a bank? It's basically the difference between depositor interest rates and and, and the lending interest rates, so net interest margin. That's how banks make their money. Uh, and the banks, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, I think they, they set their interest rate, their, their book up such that, you know, they had like an average six and a half uh, year duration on their, on their loan portfolio. So that meant that as interest rates went up, they were very, very exposed, you know, to that change. And so, so their loans started to become relatively, uh, not, un- not uneconomic, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just the accounting treatment. Yeah, it's the accounting treatment. It's the mark-to-market capability. So actually, you know, as in terms of are they a viable business? Yes, they are a viable business. But actually, if you're marking the loans to market, then obviously they're going to show show a large loss. I think that you know a large part of this is you look at the the depositors, the liability mismatch. They had something like 170 billion pounds of dollars in deposits, and I don't know what 90 billion dollars of loans. I forget the exact number of loans, but it was it was very very you know out of out of kilter. A lot of this was VC money. A lot of it was from the big tech companies which meant that actually a lot of that money was just not making any, anything for, for the bank. And so, you know, they therefore try and shift their duration out. So, you know, I think as a, as a native business, Silicon Valley Bank was probably viable and probably actually would work very well if they could just make sure they just didn't have all the deposits run. You know, one of the interesting things that I thought was that um, soon after the, the, bail, you know, the bailout, the FDIC made a list, released a list of, I think, the 10 biggest depositors. The top one was uh, Circle Internet, so basically USD coin, a stable coin, had $3.4 billion on deposit. And you're like, really? Who on earth have $3.4 billion on deposit? There was a you know, couple of SVB systems without, I don't know, they had, what, $2.5 and $2 billion. And the fourth one was Sequoia, the VC firm. They had over a billion dollars on deposit. So you know, the guys who were then telling everybody out there that they had to pull their money out had a billion dollars on deposit. And you sit there and you think, 
why would you have a billion dollars if you're a VC on deposit inside a bank? Is that? Um, you know, it's I, I can think of I can think of a few reasons why. Maybe you're doing a big investment out somewhere, but Sequoia didn't do a billion billion dollar investment the next day or week or month or whatever it is. It's like why why would you have that money sitting there? Why wouldn't you have it in you know, short term U.S. Treasuries, you know, gilts or whatever the equivalent in, in in your local government bond market? You know, actually just have that money moved out, and it, and it raises questions for me as to whether the clients actually. You know, I even understand how basic treasury management, how you, know, you, don't, you don't have all your money in a single bank. You have it spread out. You know, this isn't happening. So therefore, you know, it, it's, it's questions about uh, you know, how savvy are these clients with this sort of money that could be destabilized very, very quickly. Mike, you, you were involved in the um, sale talks in the UK, so I'd like to just bring you in for the last word on this. Any, any final lessons from um, either the process of selling the UK business or just more widely from this? Any final things you think people should take away? Well, I, th- I think it highlights that risk management is an exact science in a good market, but it's an, an exact science in a, in a bad market. And when you do stress tests, you make all sorts of assumptions about how different asset prices might perform, and you can model all of those. And you can look at historical data and say, well, the bond market's only fallen in this market, the equity market's only done this, interest rates could do this. And you can model those quite precisely. Um, when it comes to a bank run, it's quite difficult to model how many people are going to ask for their money back. And you can put in assumptions and you can look at historical data, but it's not really empirical. And, um, and I think that's where the, the modeling falls down. And I think we saw this in the financial crisis in 2008, where there were lots of sophisticated models, but no one... But they assumed assets were correlated and they didn't assume that asset prices would fall in lots of different asset classes, not because they were correlated, just because there was panic. And I think that that risk modelling still hasn't been um, resolved in terms of how do you model that. I don't envy some of the risk managers. It's so hard to predict some of this stuff. Though There are other things, of course, that, that can be predicted. All right. Thank you. Let's move on to uh, another big story of the year so far, which reflects some wider trends, which was the story about Stripe being valued at $50 billion following a $6.5 billion raise and down round. So digital payments uh, company Stripe, one of the best-known fintechs in the world, raised $6.5 billion in Series uh, 1 funding to value the company at $50 billion. The payments giant was expected to raise a lower amount of funding, around $2 billion, at a higher valuation of $60 billion. New investors in the round included GIC and Goldman Sachs Asset Management. They joined existing investors such as Andreessen Horowitz. But at its height, Stripe was publicly valued at $95 billion. So the point here is, although it raised uh, a fair amount of capital, the valuation um, fell substantially. So has this been fintech's toughest year to date? Well, it's it's been hard in in that um, VCs have now been sitting on their hands and and not investing very much. And we're waiting for that to... To, to unlock, I, th- I think uh, part of the problem is in the, in the private markets is there's this um, assumption that valuations always carry on going up and have to carry on going up. And I think that's a false assumption, really. And if you look at the public markets, obviously, prices ebb and flow, particularly with, with, uh, with the economy. And when the price of listed companies falls, there are people still buying those shares at lower prices. And uh, and everyone accepts that that is how how valuations move. So people ought to acknowledge that private market valuations are also going to be cyclical, 
and there will be booms and there will be be lower valuation. But um, I guess it tends to be more emotive in the private markets than it is in the public markets. Uh, part of the problem here is that a lot of the investors have never been to a cyclical market, have they? They've only ever known the boom times. And so therefore, um, you know, stuff goes up and up and up. And, you know, I suppose all of us, we're, we've been around long enough to have seen the bad times. We know that this thing can't end. It, it, I guess it goes back to the earlier conversation about Silicon Valley Bank and the, and the fact that, you know, they were almost shocked by the fact that interest rates were going to go off of effectively a zero base. Um, you know, so I think a lot of this is probably just down to experience as much as anything else. People just don't actually realise the world can change. Danny, how does the market feel to you? I mean, you're sort of not quite at the opposite end of the spectrum to Stripe, but you know, you're, you're starting a new business. Um, how, how does the fintech market feel to you? How are conversations going when you're talking to investors? Uh, so we've been completely bootstrapped, um, myself and my co-founders for the last five years. And we, we actually agreed in November a first investment from a, a an MFO from Australia, but it was around the, I think, Signature Bank or First Republic and then Silicon Valley Bank. There was there was rumblings and the, the general macro outlook wasn't great and they pulled out at the very last minute. So at quarter to seven in the morning of the day that I was expecting the check to arrive, I, I got told that their LPs and their, their members of the office didn't want to to do it. They didn't want to take the risk at that point. So we we had to basically dig in. The actual group of the company is called Against All Odds, so AAO group. And uh, we did what we do best, just remain resilient, kept building, kept digging into our pockets. And we actually replaced them at the the beginning of June. Um, We took investment from uh, an angel, uh, essentially, or ultra high net worth individual that I use as as a mentor now. Um, it's a great relationship. We've managed to take less dilution and to, to take 21 forward and the, the wider group. So I, I've been building in this phase where we've been trying to retain equity as much as we can because like, we want to build a business and a group that lasts 200 years. We're not just looking for a quick flip or a quick exit. Um, we actually want to create something of value in the world. And o- along that journey, we've been watching people with ideas take millions and millions in funding with no product, uh, no no MVP, no customers, no nothing, just an idea. And and sometimes it's baffling um, how, how people can raise four or five million at a 40 million valuation for just an idea that isn't overly uh, groundbreaking, in my opinion, as a technologist. Um, so it's it, for me, it just feels like there's a, a natural correction in the market. Um, so, and, and like you and said, we've had um, 15 years now of like practically free money. Like, so this perpetual growth, every, every, like the, the delusion of growth almost, um, like the number must always go up, um, isn't actually the way the world works. Um, it just feels like it's a 15 year cycle. And there's a lot of people in finance, in the sector, in tech that have never actually seen or can remember, I, I was a child when interest rates was 14% uh, in the UK. I've never op- worked in the banks uh, uh, or anything with high interest rates. That's come as a shock <laughs> to, to a lot of people. Um, it has. Um, so, Mike, do you think, building on Danny's point, do you think we're seeing a sort of change in the nature of investors, a change in investors' expectations of what fintechs can be and, and, and valuations? Or is this just the change in the interest rate environment that's prompting different behavior from 
uh, fintech investors? It's possibly just a change in the in the demand and who was investing in fintech um, a year or two ago when when prices were peaking. There's a, a comment this week from Augmented Fintech, the listed fintech fund, who said that the the tourist capital has now left the market. <laughs> And, uh, and they felt that valuations are coming back to a more sensible level. So I, I think maybe it's it's more that, that there was perhaps additional money coming into the market that isn't long term, not, not, you know, not long term investors for the sector, and uh, and, and maybe that's part of the uh, part of the reason. Because that's what really what you want as founders, isn't it? As long term investors that understand your business model and have the patience to to help help you get through to success. Against all the odds, indeed. <laughs> People need to lower their time preference. I think society on the whole, it's all about instant gratification, uh, rapid turnaround. I think maybe there's uh, a shift happening where people have a, a longer outlook uh, and a longer term plan. One last point, um, Ewan, we, we've seen a lot of um, sort of layoffs happening, you know, throughout throughout the fintech industry with, you know, lots of great people getting let go across fintech um obviously that's a bad thing in the short term it's you know it's tough on all of those people who've lost their roles and so on but could there be a positive from that does that unleash creativity do you think we could see some new startups come out of some of those people who've found themselves yeah i mean definitely obviously you know a lot of people have lost their have lost their jobs in the tech industry in the last six months a year whatever it might be and I think, you know, whenever there is this sort of crash, uh, people will come up with new ideas. They, they, they will access, they'll, they'll be forced into new positions. And I think you can already start to see new businesses being born. You know, I think it's, it's you often see very good businesses being born in, in sort of recessions or downtimes, because actually that forces people to, to build businesses that are resilient. That forces people to build businesses that focus on cash generation and actually having a viable idea as opposed to just, you know, trying to flip some VC money. I think for the people who have lost their jobs, it's it's a real shock. Uh, and for a lot of people, it's probably the first time they've actually been through a market like this. And so, you know, you only have to look at LinkedIn and talk to people. You know, it's it's a lot of people are struggling. But I think out of the back of this, people will realize that actually there is an opportunity. They have learned a lot in the in the up cycle. You know, there's a lot of a lot of knowledge being learned, a lot of connections being made. Uh, I think, you know, the world is different from you know, I sort of I was involved with sort of setting up the Starling and the Monto and the nutmegs of this world way back at, at the start of the fintech cycle, and it was a fundamentally different different world there. Uh, I think that you know, for the people who have lost their jobs, um, they, a lot of them will create new businesses, and I think that'll be a great thing to see. Yeah, well, well said. I'm I'm sure there are a number of a number of people, a number of our listeners who who found themselves in that position. So best of luck to all of you who are listening. And Indeed, best I, of luck. Yeah. All right, well, we're just going to take a very quick pause here and we will be back very shortly. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider. Blockchain Insider. 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is a little thing some of you might not have heard of called ChatGPT. Um, so 
among the many stories was that JP Morgan was restricting its staff from using the artificial intelligence bot ChatGPT. JP Morgan Chase barred its employees from using the ChatGPT chatbot. The AI software is restricted with the move affecting employees across the bank. JP Morgan's decision was not triggered by any specific incident and is part of controls around third party software. The AI platform creates text, photos, and other media in response to a brief prompt. This has sparked a debate throughout the industry about its potential from everything from creating stock portfolios to writing poems. Even an exchange-traded fund is being considered around the idea, according to reports. JP Morgan joined Goldman Sachs, Citi, Deutsche Bank, and many other banks that have also restricted access to the technology. Um, So, Mike, how about if I come to you first on this one? Are banks really banning AI, or is this just something about chat GPT in particular? Um, I think it is inevitable that the banks were going to bring in rules to stop the staff using chat GPT because of the issues around the fact that they don't, um, don't own the data, don't own, don't own the software. I, mean, I think it is like any other application, and, but, but, but exacerbated here because you, you put data into chat GPT and you have, you've lost it to some organization where you've got no idea what, what you're going to do with it or, or how to get it back or where else it could could be used. And you're going to tell me next that banks are sitting on sensitive data, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, for regulated business, that, that can never, you know, that can ne- never, never be allowed. And, and you know, it's gone outside of the perimeter. You know, they've had fines for all sorts of things. And you know, staff using WhatsApp with clients, the data's going outside the perimeter. So um, I'm sure they want to use AI a, a lot more, but, but not with but they can't, they can't use the chat GPC model, it would be my observation. I, mean, I don't know, I'm sure your listeners would have seen there was a, a startup in France last month called Mistral, which raised $100 million or something, having done nothing so far. And they've set their stall out as going to be the European competitor to OpenAI. But, but when they set out their plan, they said they're going to produce what they call an open source licensing model that will allow users to keep control of their own data and control of their own version of the model because they recognize the, the, the uh, confidentiality issues around this. And I think that's far more likely to succeed if they're, if they're able to do that. So I think it it makes sense. I think you're going to trigger Danny, Mike, if you mention sort of someone raising £100 million pounds with no, uh, <laughs> you know, with, with a, couple of, a couple of star names from their employees. <laughs> Uh, so ex Google, uh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um, the uh, so we we've had to implement this policy ourselves. Um, it's not fintech, but Samsung engineers. My CTO and co-founder is former Samsung engineer, and somebody that was working on a new project basically dumped a whole bunch of source code into ChatGPT to try and solve a problem, and it basically handed over this sensitive information of the new product to OpenAI. So that was uh, it's probably the highest profile corporate secrets being shared with OpenAI. One thing, talking about uh, raising, raising money and things like that, one thing that I am personally pleased to see is that every blockchain consultant is now becoming an AI consultant on LinkedIn. So the, the magpies are chasing the, new sh- the shiny new thing. And yeah, hopefully we see the back of the blockchain consultants and they all disappear into AI to to consult businesses on on that. That's a that's a perhaps a little bit harsh. <laughs> oh no, you, it's happening. <laughs> I, I will die on that hill. Ewan, um, what what 
what should banks be doing with AI? I mean, obviously, banks can see the potential for it. But you know, Mike's absolutely spot on. And you can't just and Danny, you can't just upload all the data into into open source uh, tools. Um, what what should banks be doing? How do you use AI in a secure way? So, um, you know, at the end of the day, these these generative AI systems are just mathematical models. Okay, and there are multiple models out there that you can host yourself. Uh, effectively open source systems in some way, shape, or form. So I think that the obvious thing that a bank should do is if they want to start exploring generative AI and, and see how AI works, sure, you might have a bit of a test with a with something like a chat GPT, but as Mike's observed, you know, that loses you a lot of data very, very quickly. So you can stand up a lot of these systems internally. You know, banks have very large technology teams. If I was a bank, CTO at a bank or a CIO at a bank, what I would be doing is putting a small team onto this, actually letting them start to play with some of these generative AI systems. What you want to be doing is really uh, allowing your teams to be able to update the weightings of the parameters inside the model. So effectively, that's the stuff that the neural networks inside the AI use to predict the, the next uh, the next word of the, of the output, which is what they're creating. Update, update that with a lot of your internal documents. So I think what you'll then start to see is company-specific or industry-specific AI models that actually are tailored very much to the areas you want to work on. Um, I think that, you know, AI for me, a lot of the, or at least as, as it exists at the moment, it's very, very good at a lot of the mundane understanding of data. So if you were to use it for, uh, you know, sort tasks that you're putting a lot of people on at the moment, actually just data cleansing, um, you know, probably some early stage fraud analytics or higher level analysis. It's very, very good at that sort of stuff. You know, everyone's sort of saying, oh, you know, it's a brilliant creative system. It's not a creative system at the end of the day. It, it, it's a real hodgepodge. And actually, you know, you don't want a creative system inside a bank. You know, what you probably want is a tool that will sit with, say, your, your relationship managers and actually help them augment the conversations they're having with clients. So I think, you know, what I would do is I'd be focusing on internal operational type capabilities where you're spending a lot of time with people, um, possibly looking at some sort of internal fraud or, or stuff like that, and then and then start to explore how it might help you engage with your clients. But I wouldn't, I would always have a human in control of it, at least at the moment. Yeah, it's definitely not infallible. Uh, there was a court case in the US where the attorney used uh, ChatGPT to, to write the defense and it made up precedent which the court didn't like very much. Indeed. Um, so, but I I absolutely uh, agree with Ewan. Um, it's it's a tool. It's not it's not going to create new ideas and new solutions to problems, but it's definitely a tool. I personally use it for writer's block. Um, it helps me get over writer's block all the time. Mike, is this a is this a glass half full uh, sort of thing or a, a glass half empty? Is is do you see AI as a big opportunity for the industry to sort of augment people, to take boring work away from people, and get people focused on more interesting things, or is it going to lead to a sort of jobs bloodbath, as you know some of the tabloid newspapers in various different countries would have us believe? I'm very positive about it. I, I think it has great potential. But people are trying to work out how to unlock that potential but i think it's got i think it's got um a lot of operational benefits that doesn't mean to say it's putting people out of work it's allowing people to do their jobs more efficiently so you don't have to hire so many people rather than rather than making redundancies and i think there is a lot more that can be done on the on the front end in terms of data analysis for customer acquisition um because bigger volumes of data can be analyzed and uh, different models may be able to come with better ways to target and segregate customers 
um, which traditional models are are unable to do. So I, I, I'm very positive about it. So just don't upload all of your data into a, <laughs> into ChatGPT. Okay, well, having looked at uh, some of the lessons learned around bank runs, acquisitions, down rounds, uh, and artificial intelligence, let's have a quick fire round on what our panel has taken from the first half of the year as their big lessons. So, Ewan, what's the one thing that the first half of this year has sort of taught you about the industry or that's going to sort of stand stands out in your mind? Um, I think the one thing for me is that the world never changes, uh, but it always changes. So, you know, the long run economic output is always, you're always going to revert to that. You know, we've had 15 years, as we said, of very low interest rates, uh, massive boom times, everyone's doing very, very well. It can't last and it was never going to last. And the fact that's a surprise to people, and that's also a historical learning. You know, people are all surprised when the, when the good times end. So um, I think it's, for me, it just reinforces that humans never actually learn from history. <laughs> Mike, what's the one lesson that you're going to take into the second half of the year? I think um, the recent events have reinforced that platforms need to hold more runway than they than they expect. We've been through COVID where funding dried up for a while. Now we've gone into an economic downturn where funding has dried up. You can never anticipate when these are going to happen. And when companies prepare their cash flow forecasts, you can't build in an unexpected downturn. I mean, you can try, but, but it's difficult. So you need to have that additional downside sensitivity so that you can get through the unexpected downturn. Danny, what's the big lesson for you from the first half of the year? Echoing both you and Mike, uh, I think, but being on the journey that I'm on, it's I'm still very much at that chewing glass and staring into the abyss phase uh, of building a, a business and a startup. So um, yeah, it, it's the, the lesson for me is it's not done until it's done and cash flow is king. For us to be billing changes our entire outlook from a financing perspective uh, and the discussions that we have with investors or potential investors become so different. And we just, yeah, we, we need to actually build a business that can stand on its own two feet. Definitely. I, I completely agree. We had this sort of, the industry was slightly detached from the idea of profitability for, for a while because of all the free money that you were talking about earlier. And it's, um, it's a long overdue return to reality. I think for me, possibly the biggest lesson of the year, first of the year, is just how resilient people can be. You know, we, we talked about, uh, you know, people who've been laid off, people who've lost their roles and so on. It's it's fascinating how how people do just brush themselves up, off, get back up and, and get going again. And for all that, Danny, I think you're perhaps being a little bit unfair on blockchain consultants, that they're all turning up as AI consultants. I think that capacity for reinvention and people's ability to to find a new thing and to, to keep keep thriving is is to me one of the lessons of the year of how, how resilient people are, um, even if that does mean pretending you have more expertise than you actually do. <laughs> it's, it's just a Dunning-Kruger curve. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up today's discussions. Thank you so much uh, to the three of you for joining me. Where can people uh, find out more about you and more about your companies? Um, so firstly, Danny, where can people find out more about you and about 21? 21.money or... If you dare follow me at BTC Danny on Twitter, it's a it's a bit of a hellhole on there. <laughs> and Ewan, um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Ewan Silver, uh, and I guess everyone knows where Eleven FS is. Apparently, we do a podcast and a few other things as well. And how about you, Mike, and Innovate Finance? Uh, thanks, Benjamin. So you can uh, find us on the Innovate Finance website, innovatefinance.com. And anyone who's interested in hearing more about the state of uh, capital and investment into the sector, we'll be releasing our reports on 
first half year of capital investments into fintech. And you can find me, uh, Benjamin Ensor, uh, on LinkedIn or indeed, as Ewan says, on 11s.com. So thank you all very much for listening. Uh, if you've liked what you've heard, please follow our podcast. Um, please let us know what you'd like to hear about on future episodes. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, search for 11FS or Fintech Insider, or you can even email us at podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you all so much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.